Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Well, over the last uh, three weeks, we've been in the series for three weeks. I think I got the week number right tonight. It should say week four. Uh, we've had three lessons so far. The first lesson I took us through was on the pre-incarnate Christ. So the eternal Son, the eternal Son of God, God the Son, who is eternal in His divinity, um, the Christ, second person of the Trinity, who existed long before Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was the enfleshing or the incarnation of the Son of God, but the Son of God existed from eternity past. So that first week we talked about the pre-incarnate Christ, and then Pastor Matt two weeks ago led you through a study on the incarnation, the infleshing of that same eternal Son into time and space uh, to walk here on earth and to minister and to live and to die and to rise again. And last week I introduced you to, um, uh, uh, well I think Pastor Matt introduced you to the term um, but I introduced you again last week to the term hypostatic union, the hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union talks about Jesus who is truly God and truly man. And when we talk about the deity of Christ, as we did last week, we cannot, or the Godhood of Christ, we cannot leave out the humanity of Christ. And so tonight, let's just do a little refresher on what we mean by the hypostatic Union. Remember that the, the combination of two Greek words, hypo meaning under, and stasis or stasis just meaning like the underneath substance of something. So to talk about something's hypostasis or someone's hypostasis, we're just talking about what they are underneath. What is the actual real substance of a thing or person? And in this case, talking about Jesus, we're talking about the incarnate Son. What is the actual substance in his nature of the Son of God in his incarnation? And the hypostatic union refers to Jesus who is one person with two natures. Okay, remember this, you are one person with one nature. I am one person with one nature. I have one singular nature. I'm human, period. That's all I am. But Jesus was one person with two natures in that he was one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the flesh, but he had a truly divine nature and a truly human nature. So last week we covered the divine, the deity, the godhood of Jesus. Now we're going to talk about the humanity of Jesus. And it might sound crazy to say this, but this is equally important. Um, I think Christians spend a lot of time, rightly so, arguing that Jesus is God, and we should, because to say anything other than that is false doctrine. That's heresy. That's where you get into cult stuff to say Jesus isn't God. So we talk a lot about that. But we also have to talk about the human nature of Jesus, that he was truly man. Because if we don't have that nature, we don't have a mediator. We must properly understand the humanity of Christ just as much as we understand his deity, or we run the risk of falling off into a ditch of false teaching. Um, look at 1 John, if you're there, look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. Listen to what the Apostle John says here. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they had been of us, they wouldn't have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 
No one denies the Son has the Father, and everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So with all the talk that we hear sometimes about the Antichrist and the end of days and the last days and Antichrist and the beast and the mark of the beast, I think it's interesting to note how the Apostle John marks Antichrist. In fact, he doesn't talk about the Antichrist so much as he talks about Antichrists. And he says many have already come out from us. He's talking about people who seemingly once belonged to the church but have now turned their back on the faith and they have denied that Jesus is the Christ. And that's how the Apostle John defines Antichrist. People who deny that Jesus is the Christ. All right? Now, keep that in mind. Antichrists deny Jesus is the Christ. Okay? It makes sense, doesn't it? Turn over to the book of 2 John. 2 John technically doesn't have chapters. It's just one chapter. So we just say 2 John 7. But you can say 2 John 1, 7, uh, down in verse 7 of 2 John. Let's see how he further def- defines this, this antichrist spirit. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Does that sound familiar? Same language from chapter 2 in 1 John. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ, but he adds this detail, in the flesh. And he says, such a one is antichrist now i think that's remarkable that in first john he says watch out for antichrist who are they john well they're the ones that deny that jesus is the christ the messiah the son of the living god and then in second john he further defines this he says let me tell you one particular kind of jesus deniers it is those who deny that jesus came in the flesh let me shorthand that for you it's those who deny that Jesus was truly man. Now, I think it's interesting as you read these, these passages of Scripture that it seems like early on in the church's history, I mean, this is first century stuff, one of the false teachings they're dealing with most isn't that Jesus Christ is God or not God. They're not, they don't seem to be dealing with that. What John is dealing with is whether or not Jesus was truly man. By Paul's time, and certainly by the end of the first century when John is writing, there is a false teaching called Gnosticism. Paul might have been dealing with what's called proto-Gnosticism, sort of an early form of it. Gnosticism is a big word that simply means this. It was a worldview or, or religion, a spiritual worldview, that said the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And so if you were a Christian who was beginning to be influenced by Gnosticism, and you have this formula, physical bad, matter is bad, spiritual is good, then it makes sense that you would say, well, if Jesus is God and he's divine, he must only be spiritual. He couldn't have become flesh because flesh is bad. And so this false teaching was creeping into churches and making people doubt, well, maybe God didn't become a real man. Maybe he just appeared to be a man. And the Apostle John, fighting against this false doctrine, says, no, in fact, that's the spirit of Antichrist. That is just as bad as denying Jesus altogether, that these people deny that Jesus was truly man. What is Antichrist except those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh? When we talk about the Lord Jesus, we're talking about someone who is not man-like, Not a fraction. Remember, not half God, half man, three quarters, one quarter, whatever. He's not a demigod, as in Greek and Roman religions. He is, at once, truly God and truly man. Does anybody just know Luke 2.52 right off the bat? It's It's an interesting little verse there about the birth of Jesus and Jesus growing up. I think when I start quoting it, you'll know it, that Jesus, the boy grew in wisdom and stature. He he was a real little boy who grew up just like any other little boy. And as he grew in stature, his tallness, his weight, as he grew physically, he was also growing spiritually and mentally in his wisdom. I don't know if we kind of say that, and maybe you've taught some children that, but have you really thought about that? This is the incarnate God in human flesh 
who is nothing less than God in human flesh, and yet here we're talking about someone growing, learning, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Now I want to tell you, on one hand, this cannot refer to deity. What did we talk about last week with deity? Godhood is immutable. It does not change. What is God cannot grow. What is God cannot learn. What is God cannot change, adapt, etc. But Jesus assumed a true human nature. And in that true human nature, that nature does grow. And it does learn. And it does change. And it does advance. So while we're not talking about God in his essence changing and growing and learning, we're talking about God in Christ, that human nature growing and learning and changing. I want you to think about tonight a number of things that Jesus experienced in his incarnation. (coughs) Things that God, in his essence, does not experience. Jesus, in his incarnation, experienced birth. God is not born, right? God has no beginning and no end. One of my favorite questions from children is, where did God come from? Or, or uh, where did God start? When was God born? And it's fun to just watch their little minds explode when you tell them he doesn't have a beginning. He was never born. He just is. God just is. He wasn't born, but Jesus was born. God doesn't grow, but Jesus grew. God does not get tired or sleep, does he? I mean, this is, this is common sense stuff about God. He doesn't get tired or sleep or slumber. But Jesus did. He experienced sleep, exhaustion. Jesus experienced the needs of hunger and thirst. Now, one could argue that God experiences sorrow, but I mean in a fleshly sense, weeping with human eyes and human tears. How about suffering? God, in his nature, cannot experience physical suffering. And he certainly, in his essence, in his divine nature, cannot die, but Jesus died. So we have to say these are things not experienced by deity. According to the divine nature, the one essence that is God, the Almighty, cannot die, cannot grow, cannot suffer, cannot change. Those things cannot be experienced by deity. But they were experienced by Christ in his humanity. Christ did experience those things in his human nature. Now this can be confusing, especially when you have to start putting out all the caveats. Because here's here's what we run the risk of doing now is we kind of start fractioning off Jesus again, don't we? Because we start talking about the divine nature and the human nature, and the divine nature does this, and the human nature does this, and this can't do that, but this does. And immediately we start thinking of halves and sides, and as if Jesus had a divine side and a human side, like sort of alternate personalities or or something. No, we have to remember these aren't fractions. That union in the one person of the two natures. Here's a helpful quote theologian John Walford, he said this, while the attributes of one nature, you know, whether we're talking about the divine or the human nature, while the attributes of one nature are never attributed to the other, right? So just as much as we say Jesus in his human nature grew, slept, suffered, died, we can't say that that God in his essence did those things. The same is true of God in his essence, God, in his essence and his nature, is omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. But the human nature of Jesus that experiences hunger and thirst and suffering and dying, those attributes are not communicated between the two persons. The attributes are never mixed. Walford says the attributes of both natures are properly, though, attributed to the one person. Now, that sounds like a bunch of theological mumbo-jumbo, I know, but here, here's, here's what he's saying. There's one person, the Lord Jesus, and whatever is being said about his divine nature is being said about the one person, right? And whatever is being said about his human nature is being said about 
the one person. We're not talking about this side or that side. We're talking about this nature and that nature, but they both, as your diagram shows there, they're both referring to the one person, the Lord Jesus. Not fractions, not parts, not halves, not sides, not personalities. The one person, the Lord Jesus. Uh, One of my commentaries said this, Whatever can be said of one of Christ's natures can be rightly said of Christ as a whole person. Whatever can be said of one of Christ's natures can be rightly said of Christ as a whole person. Um, Turn over to Acts 20, uh, verse 28. This is a classic example because it kind of, it throws some stuff in our face that we got to deal with. Acts 20, verse 28. A little context here. Uh, Paul is about to leave Ephesus. And he has called the Ephesian elders, the Ephesian pastors, uh, to himself. And he's giving them sort of a farewell speech. And he's telling them to be good pastors, to care for the flock that God has put them in charge of. And, and look at how he says it here in Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood which he obtained with his own blood. Now, here's here's elementary question. Does God have blood? I hope you're a little confused right now, but the answer is no. And God in his nature, in his divine nature, the essence of God has no flesh and bones or blood. He's a spirit. And so he doesn't have blood. So... (laughs) Paul, what are you talking about? Are you a heretic? No, Paul's not a heretic. He's, 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 he's laying something out for us that's important for us to understand. Who purchased the church with his own blood? Was it the Father? No, it was the Son, the Lord Jesus incarnate, who did have blood. Jesus in the flesh did have blood. He does have blood. What Paul is doing here is exactly what that commentary said. That what can be said about Jesus' human nature is being applied to the whole person. So that if we say Jesus is God in the flesh, and we say Jesus bled and died for the church to pay for her, then it's okay to say of the one person, Jesus, God purchased the church with his blood. And that's exactly what Paul is doing there. Now, I want to take us on just a little... um, and, and, and Paul is doing this, at last point there, without dividing the persons or natures. He's, he's not having to say, now wait a minute, I'm talking about the divine side, not the, not the human side, or the human side, not the divine side. I know he throws it out there for us. God, in Christ, suffered, bled, and died for the church. Let's do a little survey through these verses, talking about one person, two natures. Uh, turn back to Isaiah chapter 9. All the way back to Isaiah. These are going to be familiar verses from Christmas time that are beloved and rightly so. But let's, let's take a closer look and see how even in these prophecies, we see, a little, we see a little glimpse of this truth, one person in two natures. Isaiah 9, 6. You know this one, don't you? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's human language, right? A child is born. A son is given. Does God have a birthday? No. Does God come into existence at some point in time? No, but people do. Humans do. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. But look what we're going to call his name. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Now, That's not to confuse Jesus the Son with the Father when it says everlasting Father. It means the Father of eternity in terms that Jesus is Lord of time and space, okay? It's not saying Jesus is the Father. That's heresy, right? Jesus is the Son. But look at those divine names. On one hand, we have a child born, a son given, human language, birth. And then, what do we call him? Nothing less than mighty God, everlasting Father, wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace. Um, now, look over at Matthew chapter 1. 
quoted this last week too. Matthew 1, uh, the rest of these will be in the New Testament. Verse 21. Matthew 1, 21. The angel talking to Joseph here. She will bear a son. There's birth. Human nature, right? And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. It's the birth of a child, a real human child, who will be nothing less than the Savior of the world and the one who forgives sins. And the religious leaders rightly ask later, who can forgive sins but God? Uh, Look at Hebrews chapter 4. This is the only little survey we'll do tonight, so I encourage you to keep turning and then we'll stop. Hebrews 4. Verse 14, talking about Jesus, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see that? We have a high priest, and the author of Hebrews goes on to say he was in every way like we are, yet without sin. He was made flesh. He was made man. We have a high priest, one who is like us, but one who has also passed through the heavens, who is nothing less and no one less than the very Son of God. You see the human and the divine natures there. Um, look back at the Gospel of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's a remarkable little insight into the mind of Christ. This one person who was both truly God and truly man, who in this moment of dealing with people, knows all that is in man. And he has no need to, to, to explain himself to them because he knows their hearts. Now, who knows the hearts of men except God? Look at John 3, verse 13. John three thirteen. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. Now, who, can, who can ascend? Remember the psalm? Who can ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who can go up into heaven and come back down as he wills? Look at what Jesus says, the Son of Man. No one but God has access to the throne of God as he pleases. But then Jesus also says, but it's the Son of Man, speaking of his human nature. Look over at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 17 Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Talking about his working on the Sabbath. He says, Why do you fault me for working? My Father, who is God, is working. And because my Father, who is God, is working, since we are one, and I am in him and he is in me, I am working. A clear statement of Jesus' divine nature. Just a few more. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. God does not experience hunger. But here we have the man Jesus, after fasting as a human, going without food and without water, he's hungry there in the wilderness. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4, you know this one, the woman at the well, and Jesus comes there and he says what to her? John 4, 6. He tells the woman to get him some water because, verse 6, he was wearied from his journey, and he was sitting beside the well. He was wearied, and he was having to rest. 
God does not grow weary. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. Yet Jesus in his humanity is weary and he's thirsty and he has to stop and rest his feet and rest his body and he's looking for a drink of water. Look at Revelation chapter 1. Two more, uh, three more, sorry. Revelation chapter 1. In the introduction to the book of Revelation when Jesus has first appeared to uh, John and we kind of get a glimpse of what's going to happen throughout the rest of the book. Um, John 1, 17 through 18. John says, When I saw him, that's Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now look at all that wonderful language around that middle section. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. Uh, he who is the beginning and who is the end can have no beginning and can have no end. He is the beginning and the end. I am the living one. I live forevermore. But what's sandwiched right there in the middle of all that divine language? I died. Jesus, according to his humanity, died. Even though he is truly God. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, verse 5. Talking about Israel, Paul says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, flesh is the Christ. Jesus was born as a Jewish man from the nation of Israel. But, what does Paul say next? who is also God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, just one, in one breath, Paul covers the entire history of Israel leading to the birth of Jesus, their Messiah, who is also God in human flesh. One last one, Luke 23. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke 23, verse 43. Jesus and this scene is dying on the cross. Again, God in his nature cannot suffer and cannot die. But here is Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering and dying. But look at this promise he makes to this man. Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I, I can't even understand all the cosmological spiritual things that are being said in just one simple statement. Jesus, who is God in human flesh, God who cannot suffer and die, incarnate in the man Jesus who is hanging on a cross, suffering and dying, but who has the authority to make a promise to this man, today you'll be with me in heaven, even though as he's saying that promise, it means that he too is going to die and have to go to heaven. It's an interesting thing to think about. We think about the wonderful promise that he made, but think about all that rich theological undertones of what he's saying. This is God in human flesh making a divine promise in the midst of the most human circumstance imaginable at suffering and dying. Perhaps one of the biggest questions we have, and I'm going to point you to a particular text in a minute, is this one. Was Jesus omniscient? In other words, did Jesus know everything? Can anybody tell me what one verse, you don't have to name the verse, if you can just quote it, what one verse kind of makes us have to ask this question? Anybody? Right. No one knows the day of the return of Jesus. And he tells them not even the Son knows, but only the Father. So what does he mean, specifically Mark thirteen thirty two, that the Son doesn't know? Well, we have to say that Jesus here is speaking according to his human nature. Now, for whatever reason, this is the one that rattles people so much. I mean, have, has anybody in here ever just kind of stopped and had to think about that one before? What does it mean that Jesus doesn't know? I mean, I, I know I have. Yeah, but it, it happens other times too, doesn't it? What other things happen in Jesus' life? We said this before that are not true of God and his nature, 
but are true of Jesus, God incarnate in human nature. We said some earlier, didn't we? He's born. He has a birthday. He grows. He learns hunger, thirst, need, suffering, dying. So for whatever reason, that one is the one that rattles us so much, but if we really open our eyes, it's happening page after page after page in the Gospels. I mean, it's really happening in the whole person of who Jesus is. God is not a man. God does not have a body of flesh and bones. Jesus tells the woman at the well that God is a spirit. And so even in the person of Jesus, we see something completely different and that this is God with human flesh, with flesh and bones, with blood, with hands, with a real nose, with feet, with all the things that go along with humanity. So it, sh- it should not shock us that in this moment, we get a glimpse at the humanity of Jesus just as much as when he was hungry or tired or thirsty or sleeping or when he died. That in this moment, for whatever reason, according to his sovereignty and his access to those attributes, he chooses not to relay that information to his disciples. And he chooses not to relay that information to us. And so according to his human nature, he says, I do not know, only the Father knows. Why does it matter so much? Uh, If anybody's on Twitter, it can be fun to be on Twitter and just to read conversations and to go down some some rabbit trails. It can be very uh, frustrating also. But you'll see sometimes people get into some uh, theological discussions or biblical discussion, and someone inevitably asks, why does it matter? And with all good intentions, trying to make sure we keep our focus on Jesus you know, trying to make sure we keep our focus on the lost and people are going to hell and people need to hear about Jesus. And here we are arguing over Jesus being truly God and truly man. Why does it matter? Well, I asked the question in the way that uh, Anselm of Canterbury asked the question in his famous book title, Why the God-Man? In other words, why did it have to be this? Why is this so central? Why do we have to talk about the hypostatic union? That big old word. Why do we have to talk about Jesus with one person, two natures? Why does it matter so much that we take an entire semester to devote to the person and the work of Christ that we rightly understand who he is? Why does it matter that he is the God-man? Why did we need the God-man? Let's look at Romans chapter 5. Just as a little springboard for this section. Romans chapter 5. When uh, Jarrett was here in the summer, he preached this passage very well, so you can go back and listen to that about Adam and Christ. But I just want to focus on um, a couple verses here. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace Of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life Through the one man, Jesus Christ. Here's why this matters. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 17. By one man, (coughs) death and sin entered the world. That's plain, isn't it? That's Bible basics. (laughs) Through one man, Adam, and that's what Paul says here, sin and death entered the world. 
And so Paul's asking the question, if sin and death entered into creation through our father Adam, what is it that we need? How can we hit the reset? How can we go and have a do-over? Well, we need a new Adam. We need another Adam. We need another man. That's why Paul keeps calling him the one man and this man. The man of death, the man of life, the man of sin, the man of righteousness. We need a new man to reverse this whole thing, to hit the reset. So if we ask the question, well, okay, (laughs) why couldn't just God do this? Why not just send someone who was solely and only God? One man, or I'm sorry, one person, one nature. Send the son as God, make him look like a man, so we know we can recognize him and he walks and all that stuff, but he's not really a man. Why not just have a God-like creature? Maybe the other question is, why not just solely a man? Adam was solely man, and he plunged us all into sin and death. Why can't we just have one perfect man that leads us back to righteousness? Why not solely God? Why not solely man? Well, If the question is, why not solely God? You see the problem? If he's just God, then he cannot rightly represent man. You see that? If he does not have our nature, and he is not truly man, he cannot truly represent us. If he's only God, then that's all he can be, and that's all he can represent. He cannot truly represent man. On the other hand, if he's solely man, he could represent a man. What man could he represent? Himself. So if he's only God, he can't represent man. And if he's only man, he can only represent himself. We need one who is truly man to represent man as our mediator before God. The whole idea of a mediator is one who goes between, one who intercedes. Job, remember, oh, if there is just someone who could lay his hand on both of us and mediate. And one who is only God can't do that. We need truly man to represent men as a mediator before God as our high priest. We also need one who is truly God. Why? Because we need a sinless man. We need a perfect man. We need one in whom there is no corruption and no fall and no curse. We certainly need something special if he's going to die not just for his own self, but he's going to die for all men. If you lose one of the natures, if you don't have God or you don't have man, if you lose one, You don't have a mediator. You don't have a priest. You don't have a substitute. The bottom line is, you don't have a savior. If we don't have one person with two distinct natures, human and divine, and if we don't stress that as central to who Jesus is, then we have no gospel to preach because we have no mediator. We have no intercessor. We don't have the one who stands between man and God. We don't have the God-man. We don't have a Savior. We don't have a gospel. The death of Christ. Uh, I say irony because we're talking about the deity and the humanity of Christ I want us to focus now on his death as that central part, that central experience of all humanity. In its very definition, death cannot be experienced by the divine. If God in his nature, if the divine essence, the divine nature could die, that would not be God. That would be something else. And yet here we have the death of Christ 
which is the death of God incarnate. And in the death of this man, somehow we have redemption, reconciliation, and propitiation, one substituting himself for someone else. And that can't be merely human. If he's going to represent all men, it can't be just merely one man, because then he can only represent himself. He represents all men, all sinners, before the throne of God. As truly man... Jesus dies in the shame and condemnation that we deserve. As truly man, Jesus suffers. Jesus carries the cross. Jesus understands and goes through the physical pain and the emotional anguish of the cross and the crucifixion because of the sin and the shame that belongs to you and me. He takes physically that punishment for us. As truly God, Jesus bears that condemnation for us. He does not just represent himself, but he represents all of those that the Father has given him. And who in the world could represent other men? I mean, just as much as Bobby Martindale might be a perfect human being, right? Just as much as Bobby Martindale might be a perfect human being, if he was sinless, let's say, and he's not, but if he was, he could still, (coughs) in his human nature, which is all he's got, he could never die for anyone else's sins in here. Even if he was the most perfect, sinless, spotless human being, he was just a man, though. He cannot bear your sins and your condemnation on himself because he's just one finite human being. But Jesus, as the God-man, bears the condemnation for us. And he takes our condemnation and our punishment on himself and in himself. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.18 that he does this in order to bring us to God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that he might bring us, Peter says, to God. Lastly tonight, I want to talk about this, this truth, and it's, so, it's a precious truth we don't think about all the time. Jesus keeps his humanity eternally. Jesus keeps his humanity eternally. Uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15 verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus, hang on now, Jesus is the first man to be resurrected. Now, you might immediately think, well, no, there's resurrections, quote-unquote, in the Old Testament. The widow of... Um, the widow of the, the, the Elisha. Where was he at? Was that a Shulamite woman? The widow's son. Let's just say that. The Elisha raised from the dead. There's, uh, in the New Testament alone, the widow of Nain's son. The resurrection of Lazarus, Jairus' daughter. We call those resurrections, right? I think, I think I've given you this spiel enough for you to know where I'm going with this by now. They were raised from the dead, but they went on to die again. Right? So it was a resuscitation and a sort of temporary resurrection, but it was not the resurrection. The one that we're all waiting for at the end of time when the dead in Christ will rise, right? That is the resurrection. When we rise, never to die again. All those other resurrections rose to die again. It was not the resurrection. 
Paul says here, though, that when Jesus rose from the dead, as we saw in Revelation chapter 1, I'm alive forevermore. I will never die again. Jesus was the first man to have died and experience the resurrection. That means when he came up out of the tomb, he came up out of the tomb in the same way that we will come up out of our tombs one day on the day of the resurrection. And on that day when we receive our glorified bodies, real physical but glorified bodies, remember that? Jesus already has that in his resurrection. Jesus was the first man to be resurrected. Not only that, but when he ascends into heaven, Jesus ascends with his humanity intact. You don't have to turn there again. We've already referenced it tonight. Hebrews chapter 4. That we have a great high priest, a mediator. And remember, to be a mediator, he had to be truly man, truly God. But what does it say? After dying and rising again, Hebrews 4.14, he has passed through the heavens. And he's there even right now interceding for us. He's there right now interceding for us as our mediator representing man to God because he is both man and God. And he is eternally both God and man. When Jesus came to earth, when the Christ, the Son of God, became a man in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he did not diminish or lay aside his godhood. That was still fully intact. Nothing became less God about him in that he added human nature. The opposite of that is also true. When he dies, he's buried, he rises again, he ascends. He doesn't leave his humanity behind. But he takes his humanity with him. Otherwise, how could he to this day be a mediator and an intercessor for you if he is not there at the right hand of God, truly man just like you and I are. Jesus ascends and he's seated at the right hand of God with his true humanity eternally present. And he's there interceding for us and mediating for us as our faithful high priest. And here's why that matters for us. Because Jesus in his humanity has gone there that's the only promise we have in that we can go there. That's the only hope of us in our humanity going there because humanity is already there in the person of Jesus Christ. And because he is there on our behalf, because he is there in our place, it's remarkable what Paul says in Colossians that... Um, Set your hope on things above, not on things below. Uh, set your hope on things where, where, heavenly things where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And he says, and when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. That's a bunch of fun language there. I don't have time to unpack. But Paul says, our life is there in Christ. Our hope is there in Christ. And when Christ appears, we will also appear with him in glory. Because our life is hidden with Christ in God, who is there at the right hand of God, eternally man, eternally God for us. I'm going to say it in a very simple way. It's not original to me, but um, one of my favorite preachers, if not my favorite preacher, Alistair Begg, he said uh, one, of the, one of the most, in fact, the most comforting thing, the most comforting thing about this truth, that Jesus was truly man and that he died and was buried and rose again and he ascended and is there at the right hand of the Father still truly man and truly God. He said the most remarkable truth about this and why this matters so much to us is that on the day that we pass into glory on the day when we cross that river of death into the promised land Beg said it will be a human hand that greets us. 
even if it's before the day of resurrection and we, we die, and if you were with us in the heaven study, you know this, our body is in the ground waiting the day of resurrection, but our soul and spirit that we go to meet Jesus in the air, we're, go, we're, we're at peace with him, we're there in heaven in, in a spiritual, uh, temporary sense until the resurrection of the body. You think about it, all the angels are spiritual creatures. God is a spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. But Jesus, truly God and truly man. So even if we pass into glory before the day of resurrection, oh, how precious is it to think that it will be a human hand, the hand of Jesus, that greets us. Let's pray. Thank you, our God and Father, for the uh, truth that Jesus is truly man. And we thank you that in your divine, eternal wisdom and plan, you ordained that Jesus, your Son, eternal Son of God, who was with you, you shared your glory, you ordained that in the right time at the right place, the eternal Son would become a man for us who would know suffering and hunger and thirst, who would know what it means to be tired and to be weary and to sleep, who would know what it means to suffer, who would experience death for us, who would be buried and rise again and ascend to your right hand. God, we thank you that he is there even now, interceding for us and mediating for us because he is now and forever truly man. God, thank you for that truth and thank you for the hope that it promises us one day that he is just the first fruits of those who will be raised from the dead. And we long for the day when we receive our glorified bodies and we are forever with you and with Christ and with all those whom you have raised in him. God, help us to see the central truth of all this, why this is so important to the gospel that we preach, that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. Help us never to lose sight of either. And help us to proclaim the whole Christ to the whole world for a true and whole salvation. We thank you for what you've done, what you're doing. Send us now with your Holy Spirit, with your grace and your mercy and your strength. And help us always to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. F-B-C-D-U-M-A-S at Hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.